0: I'm going to read from Luke, chapter 17, verses 1 through 19, and then Eric's going to come up and preach for us. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him and if he repents, forgive him, and if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, When he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Thank you,
1: Mike. Hello. Gresham Bible Church. Very good. It's good to see you all. Uh, I am grateful for this opportunity to open up Luke 17 with you. A couple weeks ago, my family piled in the old grand caravan, and we drove 2,435 miles in the span of 10 days. Uh, Touring Glacier National Park, Yellowstone National Park, and Grand Teton National Park. We had a fantastic time viewing some of God's greatest and sometimes weirdest acts of creation. Seriously, Yellowstone has some weird stuff going on. There's geysers, and there's boiling mud, and there's the smell Uh, Cool and weird stuff. We put together kind of a rough outline of what we wanted to see in each park on each day, but we were really helped on our journey by a super cool app called Gypsy Guide. Thank you, Anthony Perez, for the heads up. Gypsy Guide uses GPS on your phone to trigger an audio tour guide at specific points in the park. We just had to turn on the app, listen to the guide, and we knew where to go. It told us relevant history of the area. And uh, we learned about Lewis and Clark. We learned about what happened to all the beavers in Yellowstone. We learned about the controversy surrounding John D. Rockefeller and his big land donation. Really interesting, helpful, useful stuff. Yellowstone covers over two million acres, without a guide, we would have missed a lot of that cool stuff. A guide is very helpful. A guide is important. We get to follow the greatest guide of all this afternoon. King Jesus tells his disciples, his followers, he tells us how to live as disciples. How to Live as Followers of Him. And this guide is as relevant today as ever. The focus is humility. Jesus doesn't use that word in this section, but the idea is all over it. God hates pride, and he exalts the humble. Jesus must have said that many times. It's recorded twice in Luke. God hates pride and exalts the humble. And humility is needed today. We need to lower the view of ourselves and think of others more. Think how our social media interactions would change if we approached each other humbly. Think how our political discourse would change if we brought more humility to the conversation. Think how your marriage would be if you tried to outdo your spouse in humility. Fewer believers would be walking away from the faith if they thought humbly, and that is rightly, about themselves. We have a vision here at GBC. Gresham Bible Church exists to glorify God in being disciples who make disciples of all people through the transforming power of the gospel. Today, we get a guide from our Lord on how to be a disciple, how to live as a disciple, what a disciple of King Jesus looks like. By his grace, he will continue to mold us and form us into humble disciples that bring him glory and increase his kingdom. Jesus is going to show us four characteristics of a disciple, and they form our outline. Number one, a disciple has a humble attitude. That's verses 1 through 4. Number two, a disciple has a humble faith. That's verses 5 and 6. Number three, a disciple practices humble obedience. Verses 7 to 10. And number four, a disciple practices humble gratefulness. So first, a disciple has a humble attitude. Let's look at verses 1 through 4 of Luke chapter 17. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come. The last few chapters of Luke, we have seen two groups surrounding Jesus. He'll he'll tell a parable to the Pharisees, and then he'll turn to the disciples with a sermon or a message. Chapter 15, those three parables we looked at the last few weeks, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son, those are all aimed at the Pharisees. We see that in 15 verse 3. He said to them, And then chapter 16, verse 1, he also said to the disciples. And the Pharisees are eavesdropping. Actually, Jesus intends for the Pharisees to hear what he has to say to the disciples. We see in 16, verse 14, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him, and he said to them. And the rest of chapter 16, the rich man and Lazarus, is aimed at the Pharisees. Now, chapter 17, he's back speaking to his disciples. And the crowd of Pharisees is right there. They are living, walking sermon illustrations. God hates pride, so don't be like the Pharisees. God exalts the humble, so be the opposite of the Pharisees. They're right there. Just look at them. So Jesus says to his disciples... Temptations to sin are sure to come. Let's quickly establish the difference between temptation and sin. I heard this from Mark Dever, pastor in Washington, D.C. He says, seeing the forbidden fruit is temptation. Wanting the forbidden fruit is sin. Seeing the forbidden fruit is temptation. Wanting the forbidden fruit is sin we're told here to live in a way that does not bring temptation to those around us. Live in such a way that does not lead others into sin. How are we doing in not leading people into sin? Is what we're laughing at leading people to sin or holiness? Is what we spend our free time enjoying leading those around us to sin or holiness? Are we leading people into sin? I hope not because the warning here is deadly serious. Temptations are sure to come. Woe to you if you don't deal with the temptation and you lead people to sin. Woe to you. That's the Old Testament way of saying curse, damnation, destruction come upon you. Bad news is in store for you if you lead people to sin. So bad, in fact, that it would be better if you drown than to continue on the current trajectory. The practice of drowning criminals or enemies was used by the Romans and it was thought barbaric by the Jews, yet that is a better fate than causing one of these little ones to sin. The little ones... Are not necessarily children. This is a tender word from our Lord about those who are His, about believers, little ones in the faith. If we're living in a way that leads others to sin, woe to us. We are cursed. We are better off drowning in the bottom of the sea than to continue that trajectory and face God's judgment for causing others to sin. And verse 3 begins. Pay attention to yourself. Be on your guard. Watch how you live. Humble disciples don't lead others into sin. Humble disciples lead others out of sin. Verse 3 continues, If your brother sins, rebuke him. If I'm not around you enough to know whether the behavior I'm witnessing is part of a pattern or trajectory, I should confront you and find out. This confrontation is loving and requires humility. We've got to be thinking of others and watching out for their souls. Love your brother, your neighbor, your friend enough to point out where they're missing the mark. Humble disciples lead others out of sin. And the end of verse 3, if he repents, forgive him. That's the goal of the rebuke. The rebuke is loving and earnest in hopes they repent. If he repents, forgive him. That's it. If he repents, forgive him. Actually, that's not it. If he keeps sinning against you and keeps repenting, you keep forgiving. Seven's not a big number, or maybe it is, Josh. The point is, it's the complete number. I need to be forgiven seven times before my first cup of coffee in the morning. Humble disciples forgive easily, quickly, and often. So have a heart of forgiveness. If he repents, forgive him. If he doesn't repent, you can still forgive him. It does your heart no good to hang on to that stuff. That's how bitterness takes root and grows and consumes. Have a heart of forgiveness. So the question here is, Are you withholding forgiveness? Is there someone out there that you're refusing to forgive? Are you waiting until they've paid their penalty until you'll extend forgiveness? If you are withholding forgiveness, remember your own need for forgiveness. Remember that God has not withheld forgiveness from you. Understand your own need for forgiveness and willingly and readily offer that forgiveness to others. A disciple has a humble attitude, pursuing holiness by avoiding sin and humble disciples pursue holiness by dealing with sin. Rebuke, repent, and forgive. And we do this together in community. We are concerned with each other's souls we pursue holiness together, watching out for each other. Sin is contagious, similar to the leprosy we're going to see in a few verses. We can't let sin spread through our body. We spot it, we address it, we rebuke, we repent, we forgive. Part two, a disciple has a humble faith. Among the group of disciples that Jesus is addressing in verses 1 through 4 are the 12, the apostles. And they speak up in verse 5. Increase our faith. These commands are hard, Lord. These demands are too hard to do on our own, by our own strength, with our own willpower. The apostles are asking, Jesus, will you help us to trust you for the power to live like that? Help us trust you for the strength to forgive and rebuke and live holy lives. Jesus, increase our faith. Now, I think this is both a right request and the wrong request. Okay? Really helpful, right? It's the right request and it's a wrong request. It's right in that we need faith to live as humble disciples. We need strength that comes from God to live in a way that doesn't cause others to sin, to rebuke and repent and forgive, it requires faith. But this is the wrong way to phrase that request. And I get that based on how Jesus responds in verse 6 and the parable to address the disciples' pride in verses 7 to 10. Living as a humble disciple who rebukes and repents and forgives, doesn't require a huge increased faith. Look how Jesus responds in verse 6. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Mustard seed is the proverbial tiny seed. The mulberry tree had a huge root system that was really tough to dig out even if you had the right tools and the right machinery. Teeny, tiny faith can accomplish the impossible because nothing is impossible with God. That's the point here. The point's not to go throwing trees around. We know that because no one's ever done it. The point is, God can do the impossible. A mustard seed of faith connects you with God's tree-moving power. You can live as a humble disciple by believing God for the grace and the strength and the patience and the courage you need to repent to your friend, to rebuke your spouse, to forgive your neighbor. Jesus is not concerned with the size of your faith. Just that your faith is there that it's present, that it's active. It's not the size of faith that matters. For on the end of faith is the creator king of the universe. It's not great faith that matters. It's faith in our great God. Don't worry about how big or small your faith is. Believe and watch it work. Trust God and do what he says Humble faith looks to Jesus and is not concerned with size or greatness. A better way to make this request, and this is a prayer I use often myself, is found in Mark chapter 9. There a father brings his demon-possessed son to the disciples and they can't cast out the evil spirit. The man says to Jesus, and this is Mark 9 verse 22, But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And here it comes. We're in verse 24. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. That's humble faith. It's there, but it's lacking. I believe, but I still try to run my own life. I believe, but I still doubt your goodness or I'm not sure you'll really provide what I need this time. I believe. Help my unbelief. That request recognizes the weakness and looks to Jesus for the help. Increase our faith could lead you to pride. Look how big my faith is. Jesus addresses this with a parable, and this is point number three, a disciple practices Humble obedience. We're in verse 7 of Luke 17. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? The implied answer here is no. No one's going to say that. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? The implied answer here is Yes, that's what they would say. Verse 9, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? And the implied answer here is no. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. The apostles, whom Jesus is speaking to, and Us, we are the servants in this parable. We've worked all day. We come in from the field, and we still have work to do. We serve the master dinner. And we don't expect to thank you, because we did what we were commanded. We have only done what was our duty. A disciple obeys humbly. God has called us to holiness, and he's called us to follow him, and we do it. We repent, rebuke, and forgive. That's our duty. None of us can make a claim on God because we've gone above and beyond, because we can't go above and beyond. We only do what is our duty. Three quick points of application from this parable. One, we are duty-bound to obey God. We are unworthy servants. Two, we are duty-bound to obey God in all things, We are unworthy servants doing all that we're commanded. And number three, we are duty-bound to obey God in all things, all the time. The harvest is plentiful. There's plenty of work to do. If Jesus were to preach this parable today, he might say, will any of you who have filled out your taxes, mailed them in before the deadline, will any of you expect a call from the president thanking you? Of course not. Paying taxes is our duty. We expect no gratitude if we obey exactly as required. We can't expect punishment for failing to perform our duties, which is interesting to consider here. But i admit, this is a strange parable. The master seems harsh. He's not even thanking us for the service we provided. Josh reminded us last week that parables teach one Main truth. This one is to remove pride by reminding us that we are unworthy. We have a duty, we must obey and do it. And the most beautiful thing about this parable is how Jesus is going to flip it on its head. He's the servant king. Yes, we serve humbly, faithfully, and dutifully. The king we serve is not a harsh master. He will reward us for our faithful service. The master-slave relationship has been used before in Luke, back in chapter 12. Verse 35 says, Stay dressed for action, and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. That, my friends, is the gospel. The master takes our place. We, the servants, get his privileges and benefits. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, So that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. It's the great exchange. He gets our sin, we get His righteousness. He comes and serves us. We are slaves to God, but we're also children of God. He adopted us into His family, so we obey because of this incredible privilege of being His, of belonging to Him. And lastly, a disciple practices humble gratefulness. Now we come to a story you might be fam- familiar with. Jesus heals 10 lepers. This is a real-life picture of humble faith and humble obedience. It's not random that this story follows our Lord's teaching on humble discipleship. Here's a real picture of someone with no claim on God, humbly Receiving Salvation. Read with me. This is verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests Your faith has made you well. Back at the end of Luke chapter 9, in verse 51, we read, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he's kind of going back and forth across the country on his way to the cross. Here in verse 11, we're reminded he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's on a mission. He's going to be taken up, meaning he's going to die and rise and ascend into heaven. So he's on his way to Jerusalem, moving back and forth across the country, passing along between Galilee above and Samaria below. And outside the village is where you would find the leper colony. Leviticus chapter 13 outlines the laws concerning leprosy. Leviticus 13.36 says, The leprous person shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Leprosy was contagious, so those afflicted would have to isolate from the rest of the town. This is also why they stood at a distance at the end of verse 12. Then they cried out and called Jesus, Master. This is significant in the Gospel of Luke because only disciples of Jesus call him master. Seekers call him teacher, rabbi. His followers call him master. So here's a glimpse of tiny little mustard seed faith. These lepers believe that this Jesus is master. He has authority and power He can help us. They cry out for mercy. They can do nothing about the situation they're in, but the Master can. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Jesus sees them. And he says to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. This is also from Leviticus 13. The priest acted as the state health inspector of ancient Israel, the priest could pronounce them clean so they could re-enter society. He couldn't make them clean. He could affirm they are, in fact, clean. But there's a problem here. They're not clean. So, when Jesus says, go, you better go. If the lepers believe Jesus, they will obey. Verse 14 ends... And as they went, they were cleansed. Ten lepers, cleansed with a word. The understatement is amazing. (laughs) This is just God being God. As they went, they were cleansed. They head off to show themselves to the priests and get reinstated to their communities. And then in verse 15, then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, Turned back, praising God with a loud voice. One of them saw the healing, saw the gift he had received, and he turned back to the healer, to the giver. He turned to Jesus and he praised God. God is at work in Jesus. This leper gets it. Jesus is doing the work of God. It is significant that this man, this former leper, is praising God for what Jesus has done for him. Jesus is doing God's work. Verse 16, he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. He worships. He worships humbly. He falls on his face at the feet of Jesus, giving him thanks. He is full of humble gratitude. And then Luke Throws in a little surprise for us. Verse 16. Now he was a Samaritan. He was an outsider. He was a double outsider. Leprosy drove him outside the village and being a Samaritan separated him from the people of Israel. In the story of the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, John inserts a parenthetical note, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Samaritans had intermarried, with Gentiles and pagans from the surrounding areas. They had their own temple. They had their own sacrificial system. They were outsiders. Certainly, according to the Jews, they were outside God's will and God's reach and God's love. Then along comes Jesus to show the world that no one is outside God's reach. No one is outside God's love. Jesus came for the outsider, the outcast, the forgotten, the rejected, the unclean. No one who cries to Jesus for mercy is turned away. Jesus has three rhetorical questions for the newly healed Samaritan. Were not ten cleansed? Oh, yes, Lord, there were ten of us. Where are the nine? Well, uh, they're heading to the priests, just like you said. Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Ah, so the cleansing was a test of their faith. Nine of them believed enough for physical healing. They got what they were after. The foreigner wanted more. He wanted the healer. Verse 19, Jesus says, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. I hope your Bible has a footnote for verse 19. I hope it says, your faith has saved you. We have three different words in this passage for healing and cleansing and being made well. This word in verse 19 is different from the one translated cleansed that we see in verse 14 and verse 17. This word is different from the word translated healed that we see in verse 15. This is the word the angel used when he visited Mary, told her she would bear a son. And the angel says in Matthew 1, verse 21 You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save. That's the word we have here in verse 19. The leper's faith has done the impossible. Because it reached out to God who does the impossible. He's healed physically and he's healed spiritually. His faith has saved him. And as a result, he worships and he gives thanks. He exhibits humble gratitude. He's on his face at the feet of the Master. We've seen today that a disciple has a humble attitude, a humble faith, practices humble obedience, and humble gratitude. We live as humble disciples by faith. Faith links us to the creator king, to the master, and accomplishes the impossible. We can repent and rebuke and forgive by faith, by the power that comes from the healer. We pursue holiness together, humbly leading each other out of sin and away from sin. We humbly obey believing that the master has accepted us into his family and calls us sons and daughters. And we're grateful. Are we marked by gratefulness? I hope we are, or I hope we will be. Make your thankfulness known to God and to each other. Be quick with a thank you. If you're not thankful, take some time to consider what God has done for you. There's no greater example of a humble attitude and humble obedience than our Savior. Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself and obeyed his Father and died on the cross, and He is ready to have mercy on us. If you don't know Jesus, if you haven't been forgiven for your sins, cry out like the lepers, Jesus, Master, have mercy on me. Jesus is merciful and gracious, and He will answer. He will cleanse you and heal you and save you. And his mercy continues with a guide on how to live as a humble disciple. Our response is humble obedience, praise, and gratitude. May we never cease giving thanks to God for what he has done through Jesus. Let's pray together. Yes, Father, thank you for Jesus' humble obedience. Thank you that he came and he lived and he died and he rose and ascended and we thank you that he is coming again. And in the meantime, would you help us to live humbly? Help us to live by faith. Help us to rebuke and repent and forgive and make us grateful. Help us to see how good you are All the time. I thank you for your help and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.